Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Martin Studio today. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're going to get to the Ag PhD mailbag and spend our time pretty much the whole day in our mailbag. We decided, you know what, we've, Darren and I have been doing a lot of traveling, a lot of meetings, a lot of workshops, and we've been taking a lot of calls and questions that way, and even questions from our live audiences that we've had, and we've fallen behind on our on the Ag PhD mailbag. We we always have all the questions printed out, just so we can kind of see okay how big is our stack. So rather than just having it in 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 our email files, well anyway, Darren's got a uh what do you, what do you, a little box for all these. <laughs> all these questions and there's so many questions the paper's weighing it down so much that box is bowing at the bottom so i think we better get to it let's hit the egg phd mailbag right now it's the mailbag all right brian uh, start with a i'll throw you a softball this one's from david he said does sonalan have to be tilled in or is there any yeah. situation i could leave it on top okay so sonalan is one of the yellows that we talk about all the time and it's very similar to trifluralin the well, just to specifically answer the question, I'll just say trifluralin and sonalan, the only way I would consider not working them in is if I get a good rain very shortly after I have applied them. Like within minutes to hours, if I get a good rain, fine, don't have to work it in. All right, got this one from Tom. He said, you guys were talking about doing root digs in corn and, and dealing with rootworms. How can I spot evidence of rootworm feeding on corn roots after they've already done their damage? Just curious, what should I be looking for? Well, you'll see the roots eaten off. You won't see as many root hairs, and it's almost little nubs of roots sometimes. So I, I don't know how really to describe it. If you look online, you can see all kinds of pictures of root feeding on corn roots. Darren, yeah, you often, better oftentimes way to you'll it. see a dark color too because there's infection on a lot of those chewed sure. off points. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's pretty obvious when you see it that, that there's been something that's ripped the roots apart. Now, I'll say this. If you're going to do that, what I would do is I would dig up the root mass and then wash the roots off because sometimes I'll, I'll see people will pull roots out and send a picture and say, is this feeding? Well, I can see they're white roots that are freshly ripped. And it's like, no, you just ripped off a bunch of the roots when you pulled the roots out. So do dig it up and then wash them off. That'll be your best shot. Yeah. The other big thing here is this is not easy it's not easy to scout for rootworms because you'll have to dig up a plant, get the dirt off it, maybe even wash the dirt off it with water. Well, that takes time. It takes work. So if you're going out scouting for European corn borer, for example, to see if they're out there, it's a heck of a lot easier because a lot of times you can see little shot holes in the leaves. So you can just be walking along and you can scout a few thousand plants in no time. Whereas if you were going to scout corn rootworm for even five plants it might take you half an hour so I'm, I'm just saying that's that's the big thing here and the reason why there is so much rootworm damage that goes undiscovered each and every year 
All right, got this question in from Cindy, and she said, when farmers apply fertilizer, herbicides, and ag chemicals, they're often shown to be pulling implements behind the tractor. However, homeowners often apply lawn and garden chemicals in front of themselves and then immediately walk through it as they continue yep, forward. That's Oftentimes right. you see people in their yards wearing shorts or flip-flops or tennis shoes, not to mention without any legit personal protective equipment. Yep. And this certainly invites trouble. Yep. I'm just wondering, what could you address this on your show? Well, I, I mean, at different times we have. Here, here's the thing, though. I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and they go, how many shows have you guys done now? And I go, you know what? <laughs> for t- I'd have to run the math. But for TV, we've been on the air for 24 years. We've done a brand-new half-hour show every week for 24 years. And on radio, we've done a new show every weekday for nine years now. Well, you start running the math, we've done a crazy amount of shows. So, yes, we actually have talked about this issue, but I think it does get lost because we cover so many other things. But in terms of personal protective equipment and the use of it, we obviously highly encourage that. We want people to be safe when they're using pesticides. Now, the good news is a lot of the things that homeowners are going to use are seriously watered down. Number one. And number two, the most dangerous stuff, it they aren't using that. So I'm not super worried about most people because you always want to keep in mind the dose makes the poison. And if the stuff's already, number one, watered down, number two, they may spray for 18 minutes once a year. Um, they're not getting a lot of dose in them. But nevertheless, we just encourage everybody, read the label, follow the label directions, wear personal protective equipment. That helps all of us because we don't want the ag chemical getting a bad name when people didn't follow the directions. And on the flip side, obviously, of course, we want everybody to be safe and healthy and happy. All right, Brian, get a nice graph of nitrate left over compared to what yield there was in this field. This is from Joseph over in Minnesota. He said, our crop is perennial ryegrass that we're growing for seed. And if you look, our soil samples that we pulled after harvest, we've got uh, on the lower axis, the average pounds left per acre of nitrate uh, versus the yield on, on the other axis. Now, it appears to me when residual nitrate left over is greater than 30 pounds, the yield does not drop below 600 pounds. That yep. makes me wonder, are we applying enough nitrogen or is there a reason low-yielding areas would have more carryover nitrate? Well, this is only one factor of the probably 100 different factors that are going to go into yield. So just as an example, you might say, okay, how could it be low and nitrogen really wasn't the problem in the first place? Well, maybe we have some kind of drainage issue there and maybe our nitrogen is denitrifying and our roots are dying off because we don't have good drainage there so that could be one of the reasons we would see the opposite but yeah you want to make sure with any grass crop that you're really watching that nitrogen amount that is in the soil on a regular basis that's why we encourage doing lots of soil tests and and some tissue tests as well and applying sporadically throughout the year stay tuned we'll be right back What's new from New Farm? Leopard Herbicide brings you exceptional planting flexibility for soybeans, field corn, and cotton. Leopard provides your spray plans with a fall or early spring option to boost resistance management. 
And did we mention it's a highly compatible tank mix partner due to its ultra-low use rate? Ask your dealer for Leopard Herbicide. Available for fall. During the Bronze Age, grain sorghum was a common crop in developing agriculture. Today's technology has changed virtually everything, but grain sorghum largely hasn't changed until now. Introducing Emiflex Herbicide, paired with iGrowth non-GMO herbicide-resistant grain sorghum, this duo controls foxtail and other toughweeds pre- and post-emergence so you can grow like never before. Make history in your sorghum makers. Start today at sorghumpotential.com. Always read and follow label directions. Your schedule can change by the minute, making it hard to stay on top of the latest agronomy information. But at Ag PhD, we have some good news for you. If you miss an episode of Ag PhD TV or radio, you can catch up at agphd.com. With years of valuable content and the latest episodes available to stream for free, you can continue building your agronomic knowledge on any schedule. While you're there, don't forget to check for upcoming Ag PhD events and workshops. Watch, listen, and learn at agphd.com. The first name and last word in weed control in heavier, higher organic soil types is Authority Edge Herbicide from FMC. This proprietary combination of actives outperforms the competition, delivering up to 14 more days of residual control. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. Authority Edge Herbicide may not be registered for sale or use in all states. Listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton Studio today. We're taking your calls and agronomic questions all throughout the show at 844-44-AG-PHD. Brian, get a couple of soil samples in from uh, an agronomist down in North Carolina named Marty. Marty said, I, I'm a, a consultant, and you may notice our soils in this region have very low CEC, low pH, and low magnesium. Our base saturation calcium and magnesium are generally very low. Now, normally, I agree with the soil test lab recommendations, but I got a few different ideas. Uh, and he's got a sample titled 4B, if you see the one that says 4B. He said, I'm yep. looking, looking at that one, and I think I need to get the phosphorus to zinc ratio adjusted to about 10 to 1. So my idea is to add more zinc and add more micros in general, except for iron. And I don't believe I need any more phosphate. What is your take on 4B? And then I'll ask you on the other sample as well. Okay, so on a Malik 3 test, he's got 372 pounds per acre. So roughly that'd be 180, 185 pounds or sorry, parts per million of phosphorus, yeah, that should be plenty. So I understand why you don't want to be adding more phosphorus. I probably wouldn't either, especially in a year like this. Now, the question is, how high do you want to keep that phosphorus? Because what we're looking at here is if, let's say, you want to go 10 to 1 ratio. All right, if you're at 372 pounds, and right now you're only at 6 pounds of zinc, well, that tells me that you're going to want to put on a whole bunch of zinc and trying to get it to a 10 to 1 ratio. But the problem is your phosphorus levels, you can draw those down fast because crops take lots of phosphorus. Crops only take a little bit of zinc. So I would just look at, all right, what am I? what's my plan? Do I want to keep my level of phosphorus at 372 or am I good keeping it at, let's say, 250 or maybe 300? So that would absolutely impact what you do on the zinc. So keep that in mind, number one. 
Uh, what was your other question, Aaron? All right. Then the next test, 6B, Yep. he said, when I'm looking at 6B, I believe I need to apply more potassium in micros other than iron again. And I'm thinking about putting on gypsum to get the calcium and magnesium that is needed and get my uh, my pH is already in line. Okay, so say that again. He, wa- he's he thinking wants about to more- apply more potassium yeah, and okay. more of the micros other than iron. Okay, so it's an 8.6 cation exchange capacity. In your area, if you're getting lots of rain, then that potassium can be a little leachable in your soils. So I'm not going to go nuts, but you're only at 2.2% base saturation K, and you're only at 151 pounds of K, so you definitely need potassium. Okay, so continue. What was the other part of it? The other thing, he makes a comment here, and he said, I'm going to apply gypsum to get the calcium and magnesium that's needed. Now, gypsum is calcium sulfate, so I'm not sure what you mean there about the magnesium uh, because you're just getting calcium and sulfur in the gypsum. Yeah, I was trying to find soil pH. It's got to be somewhere here in this test. You know, it could have could have just been something worded, there it is. worded Six, a little different okay. here. But yeah, okay. He said his uh, pH is good. Yeah, it's a 6.1 pH. So, I mean, for now, yes, that's good. Um, yeah, I, I if it's me, I'm fine adding some gypsum if you want to. But what I would also look at is getting some magnesium out there somehow, some way. I'll also tell you that your your base saturation numbers are unbelievably misleading because you have a 6.1 soil pH, which tells us normally we'll have a hydrogen level of probably 12, 13, 14, somewhere in there. And your hydrogen base saturation test says 41%. So I do not believe it's 41%. I think you're probably fine with calcium, actually. So I'll bet you you don't need any calcium. I'd, I'd run this through another lab. So we use Midwest Labs, for example. I'll bet you your calcium number comes back above 65% when you run it through Midwest Labs if the soil pH is indeed 6.1. And that would then tell us, hey, we don't need any more calcium. So what I would focus on a little more than that is the magnesium end of things. But even there, I don't think it's as bad as what it looks. This is 6.1%. And you got 127 pounds of magnesium. So I might try a magnesium sulfate product and get magnesium and my sulfur out that way rather than investing the money in gypsum. All right. Thanks for the questions. I really appreciate that, Marty. Uh, get a soil test in. This is done at the University of Arkansas. So it's a little different format here, but... Um, this is from Larry. He said, this field yielded 66 bushels per acre of soybeans. They were planted early last year. Now, if I want to increase my yield, I'm wondering, here's my choice. Would you work on pH first, which is low, or would you add more expensive P and K? <laughs> now, looking at the phosphorus, looking at the potassium, they are both really low, Brian. So I think whatever there was in the ground, his soybeans last up. year took it all out. I love how with the wording of certain questions, you get a, a feel for which direction somebody might Sounds be Sounds like leaning. lime is not as bad an expense <laughs> or one that's easier to tolerate. Uh, no. I, I, here, here's the thing. We often get these questions, and it's an either or. Honestly, it's for me, I'm going to do both. The, the thing is, you don't need lots of lime, I don't think. Did you see his uh, CEC on here? Um, 
I didn't notice the CEC, I'm, I'm but looking I was just, for where is Ken? Oh, there I was it is. looking at the base it's, saturation, and okay. that was really confusing to me. University of Arkansas must do it a little different. Uh, they they do have a base saturation of 33 well, total. Yeah, but the reason 23 why, of that being calcium. Yeah, they're claiming that 67% then is hydrogen, which I think that's too high. But anyway, it's an 8 CEC. Here's my point on light soil, you only need a little bit of lime to raise that pH up. So don't use much. Just spend a few dollars on the lime and, and and get that pH up just a little bit. Don't go crazy. And then spend all your remaining dollars on your P and your K. You desperately, desperately need P and K if you're going to have a great crop this next year. All right. Thanks for the question. Oh, I don't know if we said, but he only has... 26 pounds of phosphorus out there and 134 pounds of potassium. That's just flat out not enough to raise an amazing crop. Okay, go ahead. All right, got this one in from Edward. He said from time to time you guys talk about herbicides that can be used in pasture grass. I've got a, a pasture hay field where I've got a mixture of fescue and orchard grass with a small amount of timothy out there. I'm wondering, I've got Johnson grass coming in. Is there anything that I could use or active ingredients I should be looking at to consider for Johnson grass control? <sighs> so he has fescue, orchard grass, and timothy out in there that are good guys, and Johnson grass is the bad guy. All right, here's the problem. Johnson grass is a perennial, and it's hard to kill. We've got a fair amount of ALS tolerance now in the Johnson grass. So with a lot of annual grasses, for example, we'll talk about pastora, plateau, and even to some degree, uh, let's see, is it tenacity, the mesotrione product? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there are a number of products that you can use. But when it gets to Johnson grass, I don't know if I have a fantastic suggestion for there you. There isn't, unfortunately. Yep. So there are a couple of things that could be done that you're not going to like. Number one, you could kill it all off with Roundup at a ridiculously high rate and start over. You could use a wick if the Johnson grass at some point were to be higher, taller than the rest of your grass. You could use a wick. And you go one-to-one or two-to-one water to Roundup mix. And then you basically, they used to call this a weed wiper. So you're, you're going to brush across that with this wick. So that's something that could be done. Um, otherwise, you could go out there and just with a, a hand sprayer, like on a four-wheeler or something, you, you spray individual plants with Roundup. And, and keep your concentration of Roundup really high compared to the water. So there are a lot of things that could be done, but, yeah, we don't have some fantastic answer for you. Sorry. Hey, thanks for the question, though. We do appreciate that. Uh, got, a, got a few soil tests sent in that, that we'll discuss right after this next break. Um, these came in from Dave over in Minnesota. He said, guys, I've been, been listening to your show for a long time, and – also attended the Neil Kinsey training uh, this year and in the past. I sent in a couple of samples to Midwest Labs. They ran a DTPA extraction on the micronutrients. I saw completely different numbers when we ran them through Neil Kinsey's lab. Wanted to visit about that and also have you guys take a look and see what other things you see that could help me raise higher yield. Uh, great question, David. You're right. There are certainly some differences there when you look at micronutrients and the testing methods used. We'll discuss those and we'll also continue taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD.
The value of your farm building is in its ability to protect what's stored inside. That's why Morton Buildings ensures that every machine storage and insulated workshop we build will provide superior strength and durability. As a 100% employee-owned company, we're all committed to being the industry leader with a focus on innovation, service, quality, and most importantly, customer satisfaction. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. Protect your empire. Rule your fields with dual modes of action. Low-use rate Authority Supreme Herbicide from FMC combines Group 14 and Group 15 modes of action for pre-plant and pre-emergence control of key broadleaf weeds and grasses. A preventative application keeps your fields clean when it matters most to crop productivity. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. It's planting season. Race against the clock season. Mistakes can't happen season. And no one helps you face it all like John Deere. Putting technology in your hands that gets you in and out of the field faster. That makes your spacing and depth more accurate. And that gives you the confidence that this season will be your best season. See what you have to gain at johndeere.com slash gain ground. Boost your productivity and profitability with Soil Warrior from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and your yield potential in just one strip-till pass. Now that's ROI. Contact us today at SoilWarrior.com. Improve germination in your fields with the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Our unique spike design seals your seed within a firm vein of soil, providing maximum seed-to-soil contact and maximum germination. Order a set for your planter at farmshopmfg.com. Ag PhD has one mission, to give you the knowledge you need to make your farm more successful. That's why every issue of the Ag PhD Insider Magazine features crop fertility and pest management tips, insights into the world's highest-yielding farmers, Updates and results from our in-field research trials, as well as the latest agronomy information from Brian and Darren Hefty. We put it all in one place so you can make your farm more productive and profitable. Subscribe to the Ag PhD Insider at agphdinsider.com. Soybean growers are dealing a swift blow to tough broad leaves and grasses with the two-in-one power of Moccasin MTZ. Moccasin MTZ combines the power of s metolachlor and a higher load of Metribuzin for outstanding weed control right from the outset with extended residual control to keep tough weeds down, including pigweed, water hemp, ragweed, and mare's tail. In addition to annual grasses like foxtail and barnyard grass, ask your retailer about Moccasin MTZ and always read and follow label directions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton Studio. I was just talking about some samples that we got from David over in Minnesota, and we'll get to those in just a minute. But we got really actually some similar questions here coming from Lachlan down in Australia, who's joining us on the phone lines right now. How are you doing, Lachlan? Thanks for calling in. I'm good. How are you? 
We are doing well, and I have put your soil tests in the capable hands of my brother Brian. He's been pouring through them, t- taking a look at, at some of the things going on. And you kind of had the same issue we had with DTPA tests and, and the levels of certain micros, especially manganese, and then comparing them to the Malik tests. So uh, you sent us some samples here to take a look through and see which nutrients to address first. Any other questions, I guess, before I let Brian get started on that? Um, not particularly. It was just I was listening to Neil Kinsey, the agronomy workshop, sure. and he said iron needs to be higher than manganese. Okay, so, yep, Neil talks about that quite often, that he wants iron higher than manganese. Now, I will say that's on his tests, and his tests are a little bit different than a Malik 3. So those were developed by... Dr. William Albrecht, he was a soil scientist for the University of Missouri, and he passed away almost 50 years ago, 40 years ago, something like that. Anyway, um, they're older tests. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with them. I'm just saying they're different. So when we've done our Malik 3 tests and we look at all our soil test points on our farm and match those up to yield, and we have not found a big correlation between if the iron level gets higher than the manganese level and we've had any issue on the Malik test. Now, I'm not saying we necessarily want that, and we're going to be doing some more work on that here in the next few years. Uh, but so far, we have found we're still even... Okay, so let me just give you one example on your soil test. Manganese, 184 parts per million. Iron, 145 parts per million. These are on Malik 3 tests. We have some soils exactly the same as that, and that kind of ratio, manganese to iron, and it's in reverse. We would like the iron higher than the manganese, but we haven't found some big yield drag or anything else. We're still getting really good yields there. So if you want to try boosting the iron there, you certainly can. This year, I don't know what fertilizer prices are like in your country, but fertilizer prices here are roughly triple what they were about a year and a half ago. So for us and about everybody else out there, we're going, boy, I don't know if I want to pull the trigger on spending a whole bunch of money on fertilizer. But I would say if you want to test some of your ground and just see, okay, I'll put some iron on that ground where the iron is lower than the manganese, and I'll see if I get a yield response. So far, I I, I can't tell you it's going to be this big deal, but if you would like to try that, you certainly can. What's your what's your next question, or is there anything in particular you wanted us to address? Also, because we never freeze here, we rarely get below freezing. Yep. Our, I was just wondering how long lime would take to become available. Yep. So this is one of the things Neil talks about quite often, too. His general rule is three years. Our general rule is probably a little longer than that because our soils do freeze and we don't get a lot of rainfall. I I would just say if you don't freeze, that's one step. The other step is how much rain you get. So the more rain, the faster that lime is going to break down. But we made the mistake on our farm assuming that the lime was fully broken down and it wasn't fully broken down yet. So Some of these materials, these liming materials, they can take years, more than three years even sometimes. You're going to get a fair amount of benefit year one and quite a bit year two, but don't think that it's fully done then. You'll probably get some benefit years three, four, and five. It's possible. It's hard to say for sure, but definitely don't count on that lime being fully broken down for at least a couple years. 
Okay. Um, also, you talk a lot about drain tile, and that's not really a thing in Australia where I am. You say the water table needs to be below a certain level. Like, yep. what do you mean by that? Okay, with the water table in the soil, what we're trying to do is keep that out of the root zone. And the purpose of having tile is to fix internal drainage. So we're not talking about surface water here, although surface water does to some degree go hand in hand. But what we want is to keep the water table down in the, in the soil. And the, the point is simply this. So it was one of the first days of college, and I'm, I'm going to class, and just about everybody has this class. Now, I actually, yeah, Darren, Darren is about to jump in there because he goes, wait a second, Brian was actually going to class? Well, when I was a freshman, I did. But anyway, I'll, I'll just say, so I was actually at that class. But anyway, what they're going to tell you, the, your, your first class of agronomy is for ideal soil, you want it to be roughly 50% dirt, 25% air, and 25% water. The problem and what we're talking about with the water table being high is the there's too much water, it's greater than 25%, which then in effect chokes out the air. When you don't have adequate air in your soil, then you don't have good microbial growth, you don't have good root growth, and basically you just don't have a healthy soil. So we wanna keep that water table down. Now, the problem with a lot of your soils, just I, I, we farm some of this same type of ground. We've, we've worked on it a lot over the years. But what I see here is your magnesium is really high. We would call these high mag or high magnesium soils. And the problem with lots of magnesium out there, magnesium is a really small particle in comparison to calcium. You can loosen a tight soil with more calcium. You can tighten a sandy soil with more magnesium. Well, your magnesium levels are 40 plus percent in some of these tests. So it's really super tight and that tells me it's going to be poorly drained. It also is one of the reasons why your sodium is much higher than we'd like to see. So I'm looking at one test here is 3.7%, another's 2%, uh, another one there's 2%. So those are all a little higher than I'd like to see. So in that type of field, and I'm not saying this is going to pay for you tremendously day one or anything, but in those kinds of fields, what we've done is we've put some drain tile in, and then we have added more calcium over time, usually in the form of gypsum. So we'll get calcium out there and sulfur and our crops obviously need a lot of sulfur. And then we, we can flush some of that magnesium out of the soil once you improve the soil porosity and the drainage and raise the calcium level. So Neil Kinsey talks a tremendous about, amount about the calcium-magnesium thing, and he puts it very high on the list for people. Personally, and in our experience over the last 20 years, I put it a little bit lower than he does. I'd still focus on all my nutrients I need to raise the great crop, and then if I've got some dollars left over that I can invest in my ground that I own, I'm going to work on that calcium magnesium ratio because it does pay over time. It just, in my experience, doesn't pay as well as adding NPK or some of these other nutrients and feeding my crop at the same time. Yeah, I'm, I'm already working on the calcium. I've, I put um, three ton, which turned out to be too much because I put 2,570 pounds of actual calcium on. Um, 
okay, I, I think what, what you were worried about is we talk here on the show sometimes and with Neil about having 2,400 pounds of actual calcium is kind of our limit or we start tying up other nutrients and that's possible. So one of the first nutrients that gets tied up is iron and then that kind of goes right back to your question about the iron and magnesium so or iron and manganese I should say. But I wouldn't get super worried about it. I, uh, I, I would just... You just got to continue on. Yeah, we probably wouldn't suggest you put three tons of that particular material out in the future. Just put a ton or two and work on it a little bit at a time. And over a long period of time, you can get that change. It's just, it takes years. So it's not this instant fix. Like if you're low on potassium, oh, not not a big deal. You just put potassium out there, problem solved. You can't really do that with this calcium and magnesium thing. You can, but then you're going to cause a lot of other problems like I was just mentioning. Uh, any other questions that you got for us today, Lachlan? Not, not particularly. Just is there anything on the soil test you think is low or needs adjusting? Well, I think you've already started working on the things that I would adjust. It looks like you got some fairly good phosphorus levels. I'm seeing a couple hundred uh, parts per million there. I mean, potassium's a little on the low side. You've got some 3%, 3.5%, so I might bump that a little bit. I know it seems a little crazy because there are lots of pounds out there, but I'd work on that a little bit. We'll talk more right after this. If you've ever wondered how the Farmall got its name, here's an abbreviated list of the jobs the Case IH Farmall can do. Baling, cutting hay, feeding, hauling, loading, pulling, raking, cleaning barn, mixing feed, fertilizing, mowing, chopping, seeding, clearing, irrigating, furrowing, cultivating, hitching, digging, emergency tow, harrowing, hoisting, leading parades, excavating, grading. <sighs> Let's make it simple. This tractor does it all. So no matter what you're doing, can do comes in red. Farmall. Learn more at caseih.com farmall. What do you think of when you hear Palmer Amaranth or Water Hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like Water Hemp and Palmer Amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of fierce herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe this spring with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at headsupst.com. Every week for more than two decades, Ag PhD TV has provided agronomic information to make your farm more productive and profitable. In each episode, we discuss a wide range of topics covering everything from crop fertility, promoting soil health, improving the environment, pest control, and more, all designed to help you push your farm to higher yield goals and more profitability. Be sure to catch us on Tuesdays and Saturdays on RFD TV. Check your local listings or visit agphd.com to learn more. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. 
Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Are you worried about nitrogen loss this spring? Well, we asked retailers what they thought about Instinct Next-Gen Nitrogen Stabilizer from Corteva AgriScience. What they said was so inspiring, we got an actor to reenact it. <clears throat> it's a great return on investment. A great return. Investment, investment. Great return. All right, I think I'm ready to record. It's that simple. Instinct Next-Gen is a great return on investment because it protects your nitrogen. Learn more at protectnitrogen.com. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here along with my brother Darren. We're live in the Morton studio today just talking about talking with Lachlan right before the break. Lachlan's from Australia about some of his soil tests and some of his questions. Lachlan, thanks a lot for hanging on with us there. We appreciate that. So just the last few things here, just looking at your soil tests. Okay, I'm always looking at N, P, and K first, really, in terms of nutrients. Nitrogen, you're going to have to add every year for whatever crop you want to raise, so you can figure that out yourself. Phosphorus levels are pretty good. I'm seeing a lot of 150 to 200 parts per million, so I'm probably not doing much there. I'm not going to spend any money there. Potassium, I'd like to get those levels up to 4%. I was saying right before the break, I know you have a fair amount of pounds or parts per million in the soil, but you have so much magnesium and so much calcium out there. I want to get that potassium a little bit closer in ratio to where it needs to be. And it's not terrible right now. It's three to three and a half. So I just keep adding and be on a little bit of a build program with K, so nothing major. Sulfur, your levels are good, 30 to 130, and the reason why is because of the poor drainage you have out there with that high magnesium. So that's the reason why your leachable nutrients like sulfur aren't leaving the field like they normally would. So in other words, you shouldn't have to spend much money on sulfur. We've talked already about magnesium and calcium. Uh, then I kind of look at phosphorus to zinc and phosphorus to copper. You're a little bit on the low side on both zinc and copper when I look at it, because on the, the Malik 3 test, just for example, you got a lot of phosphorus levels around 180. Your zinc levels are around 8 to 10. So in ratio, you and I don't know what your long-term plan is, if you're going to draw down your phosphorus or leave it where it's at or whatever, but you know, you've know you got a fairly decent level of zinc already at 8 to 10. So if you wanted to draw down your phosphorus, you could. If you wanted to up your zinc a little bit, you could. It's up to you how you want to handle that. And then finally, the phosphorus to copper thing, we usually talk somewhere around 30 to 1, maybe 40 to 1. Well, you got a lot of 1 and 2s, uh, 1s and 2s, on copper. So if it's me, I'm going to bump that a little bit because it's well below that ratio. I mean, right now your ratio is somewhere near 100 to 1 phosphorus to copper. And in our experience, that's definitely been yield limiting. And when copper levels are low, you have more lodging issues, more stock quality issues, and just more disease issues in the plant. So those are some of the things that I would look to be addressing uh, if, if this ground was mine. Anything else that you had for questions, Lachlan? I was just going to ask about the zinc and copper, so thanks for the answer. Yep. Also, the we don't particularly have a problem with drainage. We've had a lot of drought the last few years. Yep. And we haven't had rain to leach products. And sure. all the products I put out, because we have chloride in our irrigation water. Yep. They all have sulfur in them, so we put sulfate of potash and ammonium oh. sulfate and okay. all those ones. Sure. But 
also we the other like three weeks ago we had 21 inches of rain in three days yep and we didn't after two days after any low spots we didn't have any water laying on the field yeah, and that's where it can get a little misleading. A lot of people think, well, I don't have a drainage problem because I don't have water on top of my field. What we're talking about is internal drainage. We're saying how much water is there in the top three feet. And if you're at field capacity for water, that's fine because that's basically 25% of that soil should be water. Fine, no problem. Our concern gets to be when the percentage goes higher than that and it's it's squeezing out the air. And when you've got magnesium levels that high, they hold magnesium holds a lot of water. And I'm just fearful that because of your high magnesium soils, you're holding excess water there and that's then limiting root growth, it's limiting nutrient solubilization, and it's limiting what the good microbes can do for you and do for you in your soil because there many are going to die if there's excess water there and not enough air. So I, I realize it may seem like, hey, my drainage is pretty good, but I I'm still worried when I've got magnesium levels that high and when I see the sodium being as high as it is. So it's kind of interesting, even in like Arizona here in the United States, where it's a desert, they still have drain tile out there in some areas where they're doing irrigation because they want to make sure that the salts flush their way through. If the salts get held up in the soil long term, that's going to be detrimental for the soil. So it's at least something I would be considering. And if you want to try just a little bit and then run some tests over the years, you certainly could. But I just know by looking, I've, I've, I've never seen your fields, of course, but just looking at the soil tests, I'm concerned at how high that magnesium is and what it's doing to my internal drainage. Okay, thank you. All right. Well, hey, Lachlan, thanks a lot for the call. I someone to do drain tile in our area. <laughs> yes, I realize you when, you, you when, you're, yeah, when you're the first one, it's, uh, it's, uh, it might be a little scary. And I'm not saying do the whole farm or anything else, but I would try a little bit, study up on it a little bit more, and give that a shot because I, I think that could be long-term very helpful for you in your area. Hey, Lachlan, thanks a lot for the call today. Really appreciate it. Hope to talk to you again sometime. Thank you very much for your time. Talk to you another day. Bye. All right, Brian, you want to dive right into another soil sample or you want to take a weed control no, go question ahead. I and mix care. it up? I got the soil test here. Okay, so uh, just before the break here, we were talking with uh, Robot David from Minnesota's test, and he was some of the same issues that Lachlan had where he had uh, different tests here run at Midwest Labs with the DTPA extraction versus Neil Kinsey's lab, and he saw some different numbers on the micros. Just wondering, besides those micros, if there's anything else that, that we would be addressing right away and then what to think about the big differences in the micronutrient levels. Okay, so yeah, he had a Neil Kinsey test and a Midwest Labs test. I would just say I am going to trust the Neil Kinsey lab recommendations. Now, you don't have Midwest Labs recommendations, so I don't know. Maybe they were going to be close to the same anyway. But the the point Darren was making is, yes, we definitely see a difference on Neil Kinsey's tests for micronutrients versus the DTPA test that Midwest Labs and many other labs run. That's why we like the Malik 3 test for micronutrients. We just feel it's a little more revealing than that DTPA test. 
okay, as an example here, manganese. This is the one we talk about all the time. And on his Midwest Labs test, the one says seven, the other says four parts per million. Okay, on his Neil Kinsey test, the one says 73 parts per million, and the other says 92 parts per million. <laughs> okay, those are those are dramatically different numbers, right? So that's that's part of why I'm sure you're asking this question. Same thing with iron on one, on Midwest Labs, it says 55 and it says 29. On Neil Kinsey, it says 443 and 62. So yeah, that again, that's why I I like the Malik three test. Or I like Neil Kinsey's test on the micronutrients. I just think it gives us more information that we can work with. I, I don't know beyond that if there's anything else, Darren, you think I need to comment on? Nope, I don't think so. Oh, I would say a lot of times when we look at base saturation tests and some of the other tests that get run, they're usually fairly close on Neil Kinsey versus Midwest Labs. I'm not going to say it's always perfect, but it's usually at least fairly close. Just understand that with Neil Kinsey, the way that he runs tests, and there are some other labs that do this too, they don't just look at calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, and hydrogen. They look at other bases. So in other words, that's the micronutrients also are figured into the base saturation test. So therefore, if you figure like on one of these, he has 4.75% or other bases. So that means that Midwest Labs 100% is then only going to equal 95.25 on the Kinsey test. So, so that'll drive the numbers down just a little bit on the Kinsey test compared to the Midwest Labs test. Nothing major, but it's just a, a slight difference that I kind of like to point out. All right. Uh, thanks for the for the questions. We really appreciate that. Yeah, the soils are really interesting, and just trying to understand those soil tests is so important. No matter what you're growing and where you're growing it, you need to work together with with what's in the soil to feed your crop and have a healthy crop throughout the season. So hopefully you enjoyed that. Uh, we got more oh, questions to get to though. Yeah, and I was just going to say too when we talk about like Neil Kinsey versus Midwest Labs, I mean there's still great information. A lot of it is it, it correlates almost exactly, and the the number like in base saturation I talk about all the time is K. Well, guess what? Both Kinsey showed low, Midwest Labs showed low, so a lot of things are about the same. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. Introducing Kyber Soybean Herbicide from Corteva Agriscience, the newest Premium Group 15 pre-emergent solution. Kyber delivers three effective modes of action for long-lasting residual activity, meaning your fields won't just be clean, they'll be Kyber clean. And what is Kyber clean? Well, it's a little like... Nice fields! See the difference at kyberherbicide.com soy. That's K-Y-B-E-R herbicide.com soy. 
It takes a team to beat resistant weeds. Experts agree using multiple herbicides with alternate modes of action increases your chances of beating resistant weeds. Tough 5EC is a selective, contact herbicide for post-emergence control of broadleaf weeds, especially herbicide-resistant strains. Tough 5EC is a perfect teammate, having a synergistic effect with HPVD inhibitors and enhances products in the PS2 group. Make Tough 5EC part of your winning team. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelchamUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Your schedule can change by the minute, making it hard to stay on top of the latest agronomy information. But at Ag PhD, we have some good news for you. If you miss an episode of Ag PhD TV or radio, you can catch up at agphd.com. With years of valuable content and the latest episodes available to stream for free, you can continue building your agronomic knowledge on any schedule. While you're there, don't forget to check for upcoming Ag PhD events and workshops. Watch, listen, and learn at agphd.com. What does it really mean to provide the best crop nutrition? With AgroLiquid, it means getting a one-of-a-kind approach, one that caters to your specific agronomic needs. You're getting experts who will work with you to create a program unique to your operation, all while accounting for the quality of your soil and the products you're already using. It's not just a product. It's peace of mind, knowing we've thought of everything. That's the AgroLiquid way. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. What do you think of when you hear Palmer amaranth or water hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, Fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like water hemp and Palmer amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of Fierce herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put Fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, and we're taking your calls and agronomic questions here in the Morton studio throughout the rest of the show. Our email address is radio at agphd.com, or you can call us at 844-44-AG-PHD. Got this question in from Michael in South Central Pennsylvania. He said, guys, I ran into a relatively new invasive weed species this past growing season, and it seems to thrive mainly along the creek bottom fields. Uh, it's called mile a minute and glyphosate seemed to kill it in the corn, but it came back with a vengeance and literally grew a mile a minute. Uh, it wraps around stems, grows up stalks. Uh, it, it's a tough one. It spreads all over. Just wondering if you have any information on how to stop that weed. Uh, well, Michael, thanks for the question. Yeah. Mile a minute is an invasive perennial weed. Uh, it's got barbed stems and, and so it's kind of hard to pull, uh, triangular leaves. The good thing about it, it dies off in the fall. The bad thing, uh, each plant can produce about 3,500 seeds and it regrows from those seeds the next year. And when you said mile a minute, I, I got thinking, I wonder how much it really grows. And I actually looked it up just to see if there were any stats. They say each vine can get 20 to 30 feet long and they can grow up to six inches per day. So all the Palmer pigweed guys that say, oh man, we can grow three inches a day. This one grows really fast. And that metallic blue to purple seed can float down along water, which is probably why you've got it in those creek bottoms, and has a six-year viability. So if you can deal with it in the, the normal ground, that's fine. But if you've got that high-moisture ground where you've got full sunlight all day, that's really where it thrives and has a big advantage. Okay, I was just going to say, it's in the buckwheat family. So very often when it's a weed that I'm 
unfamiliar with, I will look at, all right, what's it similar to? As soon as I see, oh, it's in the buckwheat family, well, that tells me a lot because we deal with wild buckwheat. There is the crop buckwheat, and then there's also creeping jenny or field bindweed that's very similar to that too. If you're going to use glyphosate, it's going to take a high dose and very low water volumes. So you have concentrated droplets because it's hard to get a lot on these leaves and get it into the plant. And we know that there's natural tolerance with that whole buckwheat family to glyphosate. But we've actually seen pretty good results on buckwheat species with 2,4-D and dicamba. So that certainly could be used where those products are labeled. And there actually are aquatic labeled glyphosate and 2,4-D products. So you'd have to be careful about what you're picking and the use rate and all that kind of stuff. But that's one of the things I think about. But just understand, whenever it's a perennial weed, you can burn back the top growth and it's going to keep coming. So you got to keep spraying. All right. So here's a few things. Tile is always a good thing. If you've got those areas where it's going to compete better in those low wet areas, you could put some drainage tile in. Yep. Uh, tillage actually does a pretty decent job on this weed since it's reproducing by seed rather than rhizomes. So you can actually do some tillage and get after it. The problem is it grows really fast. You'd have to be uh, pretty aggressive getting out there early. And you may have to till multiple times, which probably isn't a great thing right along a river or a stream. The other thing you can do if it's in a grassy area, you can mow often and just try to keep it from going to seed. And that's one of those things with a lot of weeds. If they're going to reproduce by seed, you can can just keep it out that way. Or, of course, you could always pull the weed. But, again, it's got barbed stems, so it's like pulling a rose bush, kind of. Uh, so you're going to have to certainly wear leather gloves and be really careful. And if the weed has already gone to seed, you're going to have to bag any of that seed up and destroy it. Now, there is a beneficial weevil that the USDA has that will feed on mile a minute weed. However, it won't kill it and it won't stop it. It just makes it uh, makes life a lot more difficult. So it's something you could check in with the USDA if you'd like. And then besides glyphosate, which would be my number one recommendation, if you're in a grassy area, plateau, um, sulfamethuron products like oust, uh, triplic, triclopyr products like Remedy or Garlon uh, or Crossbow, which would be triclopyr and 2,4-D. Those would all be options for you in grassland. If you didn't want to spray Roundup, that would also kill the grass. Hey, thanks, Michael. Really appreciate that. It's always fun talking about different weeds for me, and this one is certainly not an easy one to get under control. All right. Um, Got a comment in that came in from Evan here, and I don't think we've gotten to this yet, Brian. Uh, he said, I've got a suggestion for you for another Ag PhD segment, and you could call it Farmer Apologetics or Farming Apologetics. Uh, it'd be similar to your Iron Talks and your Weed of the Weeks you guys do, but you could hit on some of the big hot topics like animal antibiotics, uh, 2,4-D and Agent Orange, uh, drain tile, row crop stuff and, and more, maybe even have a page on your website where we could go and quickly reference some of this information. I uh, just thought it would be would in, an interesting topic to discuss. And I know just what you need more on your plates. Well, we've actually covered a number of those topics in the past. I, I think a lot of this is just how it gets positioned to the general public. And even when you see, when we use the word apologetics, I don't think that puts us in farming in a very favorable light. So 
we kind of like to set the record straight and talk about actual science, not one of these follow the science, which is all nonsense and truly follow the money. It's actually follow the science and look at what is fact and what is fiction out there, because unfortunately there's a lot of fiction and you're going to find in this world even, well, there are just a lot of things going on in our world right now that are very unfortunate, but people are going to try to mislead you all the time for their own personal gain, and it's really hard. There are a lot of interests that are out there that are completely opposed to what we do on the farm, and we have to keep that in mind, and that's part of the reason why, unfortunately, we see lots of bad press out about farmers, when in reality... Farmers are doing an unbelievably fantastic job. We have fa- we have great, safe food and water and everything here in North America, and I just couldn't be more thankful that we have great farmers on our continent. All right, got a couple of, uh, well, I got soil samples on one-acre grids on a 40-acre field that we got in from Peter, and mm-hmm. uh, he said a couple things here, guys. I'm just curious. We're shooting for 230 bushel corn. But we're only getting 60 bushel beans here. So if you got some ideas about why my beans might not be doing as well as my corn on these fields, I'd entertain that. But also, if you're shooting for 230 on corn or 60 bushel beans, what kind of fertility would you be or what kind of areas of fertility would you be targeting here? Okay, well, first of all, it's really light soil. And I don't know what your irrigation plan is for those beans, but I do know this. Even beans need irrigation water. Generally speaking, when I talk to almost anybody in the Midwest that says, hey, my corn yields are great, my soybean yields, eh, they're just not quite in ratio. I'm not, I'm not doing as well with my soybeans as I am with my corn. That generally, to me, indicates, hey, we have a potassium problem. About eight times out of ten, it's K, and sure enough, on this one, it is K. That's the number one issue that I see in this in this ground. Now, it's misleading because very often here on the show, we talk about base saturation K. Brought it up even earlier today. I said, hey, we want to be at least 4% base saturation K. Well, that's on heavy soil. This is light soil. When you're in light soil, you got to ha- also take a look at how much potassium do I have to raise that crop with the understanding that at the peak, a fantastic soybean crop will probably take twice the amount of K out of the soil. Not every day of the growing season, but for some days of the growing season, especially during flowering and potting, the K demand for soybeans is off the charts. And there are some of these spots where you only have 88 parts per million on K. And even the the high spots, it's 200 parts per million on K. In some of our heavy soils, we have 500 to 800 parts per million on K. Now, I need that just to get my nutrient in ratio with all the magnesium and calcium I have. You don't have all that magnesium and calcium, but you still need to get a little bit more potassium out there because you just don't have enough to truly feed that crop and feed it really well. So I would be making sure that I'm adding P and K to my soybeans in addition to adding those to corn. Now, your phosphorus levels aren't aren't bad or anything. I'm not saying you have to do lots on phosphorus, but you definitely need more K. And then, I mean, there are just some other things that I would look at, uh, maybe a little bit more zinc, definitely more copper, a uh, little bit more boron because you get a lot of half a part per million boron things. So there are just a few tweaks that could be done here, not in every spot, but in some areas in your fields. 
All right, thanks for the questions. We really appreciate that. And kudos to you for doing the one acre grids out there to really fully understand the variability in your field. It's something that we do on our farm. It's not something that maybe you have to do every year, but you have to do a little bit just to, to get this variability dealt with in the first place. Thanks for listening to our show today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.